poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. The energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. I think it's fair to say that a troublingly high unemployment rate, particularly among the youth in South Africa, not only threatens individual livelihoods in the country, but the very fabric of our society and the health of our economy. The more people we have working, the more things are likely to improve. I think that's axiomatic. Now, someone who has been at the nexus of the employment debate in the country is Noreen Khan. She's managing director of ERX and a former head of the CCMA. ERX, by the way, Employment Relations Exchange, specializes in implementing business solutions for workplace dilemmas. But Noreen has got thoughts on solutions that go way beyond just employment. Employment. So a very warm welcome to Fix SA, MoneyWeb's fortnightly podcast dedicated to exploring innovative solutions for South Africa's myriad and mounting challenges. My name is Jeremy Maggs, and thank you so much for downloading this conversation. And Irene, a very warm welcome to you. You make the point that there is just too much talk and policy making in South Africa and not enough action and implementation. What are you saying, that we're just guilty of national inertia? Well, I think that what we do is we sort of do what economists do. You know, if you got it wrong this week, you'll get, make a new prediction next week. And we just keep changing our policies. And if we sat down and sat with our policies and actually implemented the policies and didn't just keep making new legislation and seeing that as a solution to everything, we would be a long way long down the line. Because actually, yes, we need constructive laws, but they should be just guidelines. And we need people who are actually able to take them and implement them and make sure that they implement and stand for the strategy of the constitution and the people of South Africa. And I get incredibly frustrated when we're just bringing out, we're having a new policy on this and a new policy on that, etc. It's just a lot of waste of paper in many cases. Do you think it's a lack of courage? Because to talk is just so much easier than to act, isn't it? Yes, and, and that partly goes to one of my other points that I feel strongly about is it, it allows us to not be accountable. Because if you say that you're going to do this and I'm going to set up this or do that or make a new policy, what you actually do is you, you're saying that you're being accountable, but you're not actually following through. Remember, if it was a private business, for example, for me, I run a consultancy now. It's not just to get the work, deliver the work. You have to get the work, come with the ideas, deliver it and get the money in. Okay. And what we're seeing here is that we're making the policy, i.e. making an advert for the work, but we're not actually delivering on the work that we're designing. And that's what I think is one of our biggest problems. And we don't have enough people who are solution-driven. So the challenge here then is to change the rhetoric. That's easier said than done, though, isn't it? It's very much easier said than done. And I think that people and politicians just, you know, that's what they do. They talk. Um, And that goes back to one of the things that I feel strongly about that we sort of let go and people might have even forgotten about. I worked for many years in government. And in the years that I worked in mainstream government before I ran the CCMA, for example, a director general was appointed based on 
a technocratic process and an ability to hold the department together. And then the policy on that was changed significantly. And I think it's in the early 2000s. I didn't have time to double check it for you. And I believe that that's what we're reaping right now. But we've got people who are so busy doing the political rhetoric and not actually able to take the implementation sections and take the policy and make it implementable, as we may have done historically. I think in the beginning, post-94, when the ANC government came in, there was a lot of implementation and a lot of things did start changing. And we saw that and how our economy started to address things. But what's happened is we've now got using two things. We're putting people who we think will support the strategy and the ruling party and may not necessarily have the skills. And then we are appointing people and using government as an employment bureau as opposed to um, appointing necessarily the right people and often have just people who I consider filling their roles as opposed to actually delivering on anything. And that's where a problem comes out in relation to that. Noreen, you've got some very good ideas on on how to fix problems, and we're going to get to those in just a moment. But let's continue unpacking the list of where we find ourselves right now. And I think the one thing that you have said which is of concern is that we might have lost our humanity as, as a country, that we don't care anymore. And that's not what the premise of the new democracy in this country was based on. Why do you think that's the case? Why have we become, in many ways, a, a more cruel nation than than we should be? Jeremy, it's based on, I've had many years, as you know, in labor and been at the forefront of many, many labor disputes, but in addition to doing a lot of other volunteer work, because that's who I am. And I just see that we have people who are appointed to positions of authority and people who look up to people in government thinking that the state will save them. We have floods in Natal, and we see people stealing the foods and the goods that are meant for the people who actually have lost their homes, not to take home and have with your family because you're an employee and you're in charge. I've seen so many times where we don't care about the fact that people have got to take taxis every day. They might be subject to things like in the, in, the, in the lockdown, like COVID or whatever it is in relation to that. So long as I've now risen myself up and it's, I can step on top of your shoulders, not shoulders, in fact, kick you out the way as I will rise myself up so I can go and get a new house and live in the suburbs and have all of the benefits and the trappings, which I understand is an aspiration. But the problem is that we're not then looking after our people. Another good example would be I do a huge amount of work in business rescue and assisting people with retrenchments, trying to make sure I keep them on the straight and narrow. You cannot believe how hard it is if you're a single worker who have been dismissed and you go into the unemployment insurance fund to claim your unemployment insurance. Most people only get it six months afterwards. Now, in certain structures of society, it's not going to matter, but for many, many people, that's the only thing they've got to feed their families with. And there's this total lack of care. You walk into the offices, no, we don't take any walk-ins. Now you have to go online. This is an uneducated, you know, simple basic worker who hasn't had the benefits of society, but nobody's there to actually help them and to actually support them in the process. So that's where I come from, the context of we've lost our humanity. Noreen, there's a paradox, though, in your argument, because I would suggest to you that individually, South Africans are by and large good, generous, caring, empathetic people. Uh, You put out an appeal for blankets in this cold weather when we're recording this podcast, guaranteed that pantechnicans will arrive. There's a disconnect somewhere. I wonder what it is. I hear you on that, and I do think that. And I think that in some ways, 
that is depending on who you are and what your societal morality is. And Jeremy, you've heard me talk about the fact that I think in many cases we've lost our morality. I used to talk about a muddled moral compass. I think now we have lost our morality. But not everyone is like that. And so remember, the exception proves the rule. You certainly put out the call, and can we have blankets? Can we have this? You get amazing organizations such as, I don't know, not list whoever it is, okay. And they come and they do various things, and you have people in different, certain areas. And I ask myself, why does that happen in certain areas and not in other areas? And what if some people got, what have some people not got? But when you look at an overall general process, you see people not wanting to assist in a government role, okay? They're being very much, you know, this bureaucratic role of, I mean, stand in the queue and wait for your ID book. I mean, have you ever thought about the economic waste of people standing for hours and hours and hours just to get their driver's license? And the and the people who don't have the ability to drive there and get their license and the day that they have to take off work, et cetera, because they're employed on a day-to-day basis, I think would be treating people unfairly. And that's what I mean by that. I'm not saying that we have lost our humanity in the context of trying to be charitable, trying to help. What I'm saying is that we get the truck of pantechnicans arriving with all the blankets, and then we have officialdom distributing them, and then they pick out the blankets that they like for themselves and take those home, and then they give out the rest to the poor people. I mean, and I've seen that many times in all the work I've done. And without uh, straying too far from the topic itself, um, that kind of frustration that you're articulating and the simple unfairness of it all is probably one of the reasons why we're such a violent society. Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to even go there, but in the context of going back to what is my expertise is that we're also seeing that in the workplace. Okay, we're seeing people being abused, we're seeing bullying, we're seeing violence in workplaces, etc. And it does, I mean, play out into that because people are not treated with humanity. I'm not saying that people don't, but there are many instances where they're not. So before we talk about how to fix all of this, let me ask you the broad question. Do you think there is a willing majority of South Africans who actually do want to be part of the solution? Or have we got to the point where we have become so frustrated, so isolated and just so angry that we don't care anymore? Jeremy, I always believe that there are willing people who want to stand up and be counted and who want to make this country work. It's an amazing place. It's an amazing place to live. And it's hard to give up those things. And many people don't have that option in any event. So I do believe that there are plenty of people who do that. We've got people volunteering in NPOs and in community organizations, doing all sorts of things in relations and putting up their own personal money to do things like that. So I believe that there is a majority of people who want to help, but they don't know, sometimes they don't know how to do it or sometimes if they do it, it's seen as a misconstrued process. And so then they step away and don't do anything because they're too nervous around that. You know, This is a very unfair question because it's very philosophical and we don't have that much time. But if you, sure. could, if you could clean slate things and, uh, and begin again, do you have in your mind, Noreen, what type of South Africa you would like to see? In other words, if we're fixing it, what's the end goal? So I would like to see a South Africa where we are raising up our people and we're showing humanity and that we are actually educating people properly and that people don't actually get sort of pushed aside just because they are not educated or ignorant, etc., in relation to that. And they have the opportunity to rise up just like anybody else. So a place of equal opportunity, which I'm not convinced we are at the moment, even though we say we are. I would like to see a country where the economy starts growing every year and we don't, I don't have to actually have my heart sink every time the unemployment figures come out and that 
and 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 the way to do that is people stop focusing on jobs and the economy and all the triple crisis issues that we always talk about when people are actually starting to be employed and they're starting to benefit from that and i think we've got huge things to offer but i think that part of the problem is we've got people who are greedy who want to take everything for themselves and they don't want to actually share out in the riches of our country and i'm not being a socialist totally in that context but i'm saying that we need to actually be sharing in relation to that not everybody needs to have absolutely everything and you know how much is enough uh, in that context i believe that we also need to obviously address the, the ongoing race challenges that we have and i think that sometimes those things are thrown completely out of proportion and over exaggerated having said that please i do not for a second think that there are challenges in that context there are um but i don't think that we are actually focusing on them and i think the people who could be dealing with those things because let's go back to the fact and, and let me talk about the fact that i work in employment let's remember in apartheid one of the most cold-faced places of apartheid was actually at the workplace so we should be having people at workplaces trying to deal with integrating dealing with the you know the, the the cultural integration dream of trying to get people to work together or understand each other better and all it requires is an understanding it doesn't require an embracing and i think it it's really possible because i've seen that in many many places and then i think if we had those things sort of addressed we would be in a much better position in an from in the economy and that would make things grow and people would understand each other a whole lot more Noreen Khan just allow me for a moment to go down this one tributary if we can sure uh you've spent your entire professional life working in the employment space uh former head of the CCMA draw if you can the relationship between employment dignity and the health of the South African economy because you in your current consulting role and also at the CCMA would have seen this firsthand I can certainly do that I think that when I talk about the loss of humanity I think that we are trying to balance our first world economy and in some areas with our third world working population and there has been some good progress made given the kind of labor laws we have in trying to address that but i think that that's been partly lost sight of um and it's now around winning at all costs that's the first point the second point is that having a job and being able to go to it and being educated and treated appropriately gives somebody dignity it allows them to support their family it allows them to continue the race to continue the process and i think that we sort of seem to throw that out um and and dismiss people way too quickly um in our society because it's either you're all good or you're all bad we don't look at you know growing people developing them etc cetera, etc cetera. we say we do it but we don't we haven't dealt with issues in the context of um trying to actually properly educate people to actually work in the economy and the knowledge economy that's coming and that's directly linked to being employed and directly linked to the dignity and then of course it's directly linked to improving the economy So Noreen let's get to the fix then because this after all is what the podcast is about and uh, very kindly you've sent me a, a long list of uh, what the fixes are <laughs> so let's go with uh, and I'm going to challenge you on all of them because the first one sure. that you make for instance is we need to have a long hard look at leadership all well and good if if I had money for every time one of my guests said we can fix South Africa with better leadership I'd be a very very rich person what's the problem here 
why do we not have good leaders in this country? Or perhaps why don't we have effective leaders in this country? What needs to change in that respect? So it goes in, in the kind of context that I work in, it goes in two ways, okay, that why we need leadership because actually part of leadership is taking hard decisions and actually standing up for a few things. And I think that we, and, and by the way, I could be equally guilty of it, we may be too consultative and too drawn into actually upholding the political line or the economic line or whatever it might be in relation to that. And what happens is that leaders get drawn into the people who make the most noise or who may say the right things, but they don't actually necessarily have the right process or they're not necessarily the right people to actually address the issues. So good leaders need to account and then underneath them they need to appoint people who actually can deliver on the work and then oversee them but they must account. So it's back to this concept of servant leadership. Yes, absolutely. I believe in servant leadership incredibly strongly Okay, and I don't think we're getting that. You know, that, that good old phrase tall trees catch the wind. I personally believe some of our key leaders are not putting their heads above the parapet and not leading. And that's actually what's leading to some of the problems, because sometimes you've just got to take some of the hard decisions. And of course, we're not just talking about political leadership here. We're talking about leadership in the private sector. Hmm. So insofar as business is concerned, it applies equally. There's some business leaders who will stand up with their head above the parapet, doesn't always stand them well. But there's always this whole... Um, back rubbing process of I don't want to frustrate government because I get my mining license from them or they won't do this whatever it is in relation to that and so as a consequence you don't necessarily see all the business leaders standing up and saying what they think or saying it behind closed doors but not saying it in a public forum. So we need to get rid of the parapet then so everyone needs to be on equal footing. But again, easier said than done. Maybe that should be the name of this yes. podcast. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, again, no, it, but, it, it, it but, requires… But you just need, I mean, if you just look back over history, and I specifically said to you we spent too much time looking in the rearview mirror, but yeah. let me use that now. You know, there have, there's always been somebody who stood up and said, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's lead by that. And how can we try and change things? And people have followed. And I think we're actually crying out for someone to do that now, whether it's from business or from the state, or even from trade unions. I think we're seeing a lack of leadership in all three of those areas in that context. I think what's happening is it's falling strongly to some community organizations who may not necessarily be strong leaders in the context of that. You make a very important point in fixing, and it's something we haven't discussed on this podcast before, and that is appointing a set of technocrats, to quote you, who are skilled managers to start running municipalities and other areas of delivery. And most importantly, you suggest that we need to give them blanket protection. Give me your definition of a technocrat in that respect and how we can draw them into the fold. Well, I just believe that we've often appointed, and it goes back to my earlier point about what's wrong, okay? So we're appointing a person who's filling a role, okay? So instead of actually doing the role, they just go to work and sit in their chair all day and come home. Um, I'm exaggerating for effect, of course, okay? Um, What I'm saying is that you need technical people who are able to actually deliver on the work. So, you know, a a king has a kingdom and he looks over the kingdom, but he also has people running around doing all the bits and pieces that he wants them to do. So what I'm saying is we need highly skilled people who can do that. So we need good managers, well-trained. Let's talk about water. You, You can't actually send somebody who's 
spent their life being a nursery school teacher to run the water reticulation systems in our country and not understand that you actually have got to regularly actually keep them up to date and keep them going, et cetera, et cetera. And we're experiencing that right now in the context of that. So the wrong people are appointed in the roles. So you need somebody who's a manager who's not going to get influenced by the political issues. They're skilled as a manager, but they're also skilled in the technical aspects of what they're doing. And when I say about protection, they obviously can't behave inappropriately, but they need to actually be able just to get on with doing it and not have to be involved in all the political meetings and all the drama that goes with that. So no one's going to argue with you on that particular aspect, but let me suggest to you that the technocrats that you want are either too old and retired and don't want to do it, they've left the country, or they're too young and they don't exist because we don't have the right way of training them. Sure, I hear you on all that, but I think that if one, you know, at one point there was the homecoming revolution, I think that there are plenty of people living in other countries who would come back if they could believe in certain things. I've back to load shedding, back to 56 hours without water? Are you being serious? Sure, but if they had a chance in trying to fix it, and they know that in five months' time there would be no 56 hours without water if they start dealing with it because they would understand they'd get given the appropriate they need to budget for it properly they need to understand the principles but having said that jeremy i do actually think we still have enough skilled people in our country who can do that are you seeing them in your line of work i do see them i see them in my own social circle i see them in the people i talk to and i certainly see them in the line of work that i do and when you have this conversation with them what what are they telling you many of them are 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 they willing to step up well i've got many people who i know would be willing Mm. to stand up but I've also got other people who just put their hands on, you know, like mm-hmm. hands in their, their head in their hands and go, oh, no, I just got to get out of here. And the problem we have, we have too few people wanting to put their hands up. But I think if there were some guarantees around it or some protection around it, it would help. All right. So we've looked at some of the fixes. Inevitably, yeah. Noreen, um, and we, we just don't have time to go through this incredibly sure, sure. long list that you've sent me. But just by way of, 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 of summarizing very quickly, it's acting in the best interests of the country and not political parties. Cut red tape. We've discussed yes. that before. Uh, reevaluating the social safety net. Absolutely critical. All of these are very, very important ideas. Uh, so we've identified what the fixes are and we focused on, on, on two of them. Um, in any process like this, there are inevitable obstacles that are thrown up all the time. What's the approach in overcoming the obstacles? So, Jeremy, I would draw back on my own experience of running an organization like the CCMA. And you would you can pass back. I used to do all the what I would call the political interventions. And what I mean by that's not political like uh, as a political party, but you need the person who's the technocrat to be doing the job, but you need somebody else who's there managing all those obstacles that come up and dealing with them and trying to have a, a, a problem-solving approach in relation to that. And so if you have somebody actually addressing those issues and then having the other person actually being able to just, you know, be the sort of nerd in the background doing the work. I mean, it's not a nerd, but you know what I mean in that context. So congratulations, Noreen. You've just been appointed Minister of Fixing South Africa. And good luck to you. Um, What kind of people would you call in to help you? So, Jeremy, in my own circle and of people I meet and bump into, I think that there are a huge, I don't want to use the word cadre, but that's what comes to mind, but a huge group of ex-civil servants who actually had those views and were 
positive and wanted to help who've been had to leave or been kicked out or something and i think one could get many of them back if you talked them through in relation to the criteria and gave them some guarantees and in relation to that and i would start with that and i would also then start appealing to those people who deliver the blankets or in a big truck um when it's cold on the days and what would they be able to do and you know everybody does their little bit and you would have to start with, you know, a couple of projects, you know, that whole starfish thing or Mother Teresa's thinking, you know, just help one person at a time. Because I've often sat and thought, what would I do if I was the president? Where would I start right now? Um, and you'd have to just say, okay, this is what I'm focusing on. And when you start seeing that and you start changing the mindset, you would actually then start actually creating an energy again and an excitement that people might want to actually help. I do want to challenge you on the bringing the civil servants back to work. A lot of these civil yeah. servants uh, worked at a very different time when the technology was sure. different, when the challenges were different. Um, are you convinced they know how to do it now in a very different environment? Okay, no, look, we would have to look. I mean, I'm not saying every single person and not every single civil servant, okay? I'm just saying people who actually had very good skills or were pushed out basically due to things such as, you know, somebody standing in the way of somebody getting a tender, Okay, and they stood up for it, and then they basically resigned because they just couldn't handle it anymore. And then the tender got given, or they were suspended, which has been the Labor Relations Act's been used hectically to assist um, in, in state capture. In my view, I did a whole piece on that recently, and that, that's what I mean in that. So, so, so you would have to. I mean, obviously, not everybody, and you couldn't just do a blanket comeback. You would have to get people that actually have the the will and the need and, and, and the idealism as well. I mean, you need a bit of idealism here. And I know that that sounds weird, but it certainly doesn't build houses and give you water in your house, but it can help. So I want you to imagine now, Narina, as we draw to the end of this conversation, that uh, ostensibly you're talking to members of the business community. That That is MoneyWeb's audience. So yes, yes. someone's listening in the car right now and I'm going to ask you the question, what role does that banker or that industrialist uh, or that manufacturer have to play in the fix? We know that business is very good at talking up a storm and can be very critical when it wants to be. But what's your direct call now to business in terms of getting involved? Because there is absolutely no doubt that that, that public-private partnership is key to changing things in this country? Well, I, th- I do agree that public-private partnerships can work if they're properly managed in relation to things. But what I would say to that banker or that CEO listening to me now, they need to actually stand up and say what they really think and not only be diplomatic and try and just maneuver things around. And they actually have to say, you know, these are the things that need to be done and go forward on that and actually come with a list and actually start trying to do those things and actually show that it's possible. In, in certain ways and, and pick an industry and then try and do it in that context. I'm assuming in the spirit of constructive criticism and not overt criticism driven by anger, which is what we've seen in the past. Absolutely. It must be in the process of I'm rolling up my sleeves. I love this country. I'm a patriot like other people. And that's not a good word to use, but you know what I mean by that. And I believe in the future of South Africa. I've always, uh, and I'm, Jeremy, I'm sure you remember this in my public speaking, I've always ended with be the best South African you can be. And you do that by actually saying, what can I do to make a difference in my sphere? Not, I need to do this because I'm so nervous that the government's going to take away my license or they're going to criticize, you know, someone's going to complain. Because I think we need to move past that. 
we need to actually say, what can we really do? Because just getting some senior executives, by the way, just to go and set up certain work streams in, within government is not going to actually help. It's got to actually roll up your sleeves, clean the floors. You know what I mean? You, you can't just be telling people what to do because they won't actually take instructions from you in the first place. So you need to actually have a real set up in that context. Here's a final question then as, as we come to a close. At the beginning of this conversation, I said that the worrying or the troublingly high unemployment rate, particularly among young South Africans, is a massive threat. Uh, there is a huge amount of residual anger in South Africa right now. So, Noreen, when you're talking, and I put this question to all my guests, it's the one question that always stays constant. When you're, when you're talking to young people in 20 years, what are you going to tell them about the early 2020s and their role in continuing to build South Africa? What is their responsibility as the so-called baton-holding generation? In my view, their responsibility is firstly to actually understand what it meant to get, become a democratic society and actually exercise that right, because I think we're seeing a lot of resistance from that from youth and, and how important it actually still is, even if we have less people voting and using democracy. To also understand about showing compassion and understanding that people have had to grow and we had to try and train people up, etc., in our society, and that it's not just about you, it's about everybody. And that I would also say that the importance would be, would, at this time, was to actually try and be together and to be united as a nation as opposed to pointing fingers at each other and criticizing each other from different sets of cultures, different sets of um, socioeconomic environments, etc. And that we, it was important to actually assist people in doing that. Noreen Khan, thank you very much for joining us. My name is Jeremy Maggs and thank you for listening to the Fix SA podcast right here on MoneyWay. Thanks for listening to this Fix SA podcast. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.